Welcome to episode 5 of Phantom Power. On this episode, I interview Jeff Kelly, who is the teacher at Seattle Soto Zen, a center in uh, the Queen Anne area. Uh, If you want to learn more about Seattle Soto Zen, you can go to their website, seattlesotozen.org. That's Seattle, S-O-T-O-Z-E-N.org. Uh, I think this interview went well. Um, really glad to uh, get a chance to have a conversation with Jeff and introduce some Zen concepts to my listenership. So here you go, episode five with Jeff Kelly. I'm here talking to Jeff Kelly, who is the teacher at Seattle Soto Zen, uh, a a center that I've been loosely affiliated with for several months and um, have gained all kinds of wonderful experiences and benefits from attending when I can. I've taken two classes with him and uh, I found them really enriching. Um, Hi, Jeff. Hi, Otto. (laughs) 
Thanks nice to be you. here today. Yeah, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time to do this with me. It's, uh, it's a great honor. Um, so how did you, what was your road to Zen Buddhism? How did you come to be a teacher? Mm-hmm. Well, that uh, could be a long story, but... Uh, But simply, uh, in my 30s, I was reading, uh, late 30s, I was reading Joseph Campbell at, uh, on comparative religion, and his, you know, take is kind of that all religious traditions are pointing in the same direction, and the um, most important thing is the experience rather than the ideas. And I was very intrigued by that and felt that something was missing from my life, I guess, or at least uh, something there could be further enrichment to my life. So I began just wondering how I might uh, cultivate uh, a spiritual life and uh, experience some of these things that he was talking about. And then I happened to be going to a Unitarian church a uh, Zen group offered a class at the church. I saw the flyer and signed up, and I was pretty much hooked on Zen from then on. I had, you know, encountered it briefly in college, read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, but nothing had really grabbed me. And uh, But at that point, uh, I was about 40, I guess, and... Uh, I just started practicing with my first teacher, Docho Port, and never stopped. And so how many years has that been now that you've been teaching? That I've been teaching? Yeah. Well, uh, I've been transmitted, completely transmitted, only a um, year and a half or so, which is, certifies me to teach on my own. But previously to that... Uh, I was teaching for uh, four or five years mm-hmm. under the guidance of my second teacher, uh, Biakran, two different years. So I've been teaching in Seattle for since 2009. Um, <clears throat> so you've, I'm sure you've talked to enough students and people that are new to Zen. What what are the common misconceptions going into Zen Buddhism? Hmm, misconceptions. Well, I think a lot of people are just interested in meditation, uh, which is great, but the Zen path is more than just meditation. It's, if you'd have to call it a spiritual path, and people come to meditation perhaps just wanting to be calm and reduce the stress in their life. But our path is really going beyond that and completely opening to life and giving yourself to life. Mm -hmm. So that would be one, well, sort of misconception, but another one I think is that one can do this practice and reach some kind of enlightenment or liberation uh, just for themselves 
and then somehow have a great life because of this enlightenment thing. But I think, you know, that is a misconception in my mind. In that like a private enlightenment. <laughs> well, yeah, but particularly that you can have it for yourself, that you can still be your own um, self-centered self and right. possess this thing called enlightenment and all your troubles will be over. Uh, and it's really not that way. So we really have to give away our self-centered self and uh, give ourselves to the world so that there really is nobody to... Uh, there's nobody that gets something called enlightenment. Wow. Enlightenment turns out to be something that you participate in. Uh, it's more an activity than uh, an accomplishment. Yeah, it was definitely a misconception that I had, like reading old Zen texts and collections as a teenager. Like, this seemed like a great escape to me, like, yeah. the way I was interpreting it, you know, some kind of escape hatch from life. Right, right. Um, what, uh, what makes Zen, like, what sets it apart from the other forms of Buddhism? How is it distinct? Well, the word Zen, you know, comes from the Chinese word Chan, which means meditation. And so that's one thing that, and these are more, you know, emphases, different emphases among the traditions rather than, you know, hard and fast distinctions. But the Zen tradition then emphasizes meditation. And uh, our Sota tradition, uh, you know, as part of the Zen tradition, emphasizes just I think probably puts more emphasis on this just sitting zazen, just uh, meditation aspect, which is then carried into all aspects of your life. So it's not only the sitting on the cushion meditation, but it's um, but that's where it begins. And so that's one thing: the emphasis on meditation. A second one would be an emphasis on direct experience. Uh, certainly Buddha taught that you, know, you should discover this for yourself, but um, our tradition emphasizes in particular that it's not about the words, it's not about the ideas, it's about direct experience. So verify things for yourself. Uh, and I think those are probably the two main things. There's also a emphasis on transmission from student to teacher. Can you explain More. that a little bit? Uh, yeah. Well, because it's because it's not about words and it's not about learning. It's not about knowledge. It's about experience and spiritual maturation, if you will. Because of that, there's no training course per se. There's no uh, system of um, take this number of courses and master these number of sutras and you'll be certified. There has to be a kind of an intangible maturation and the teacher has to be 
somewhat intimate with the student in order to uh, see that maturation develop. And so this intimate relationship between teacher and student is one that unfolds over time and gradually the student, well, becomes their own, uh, becomes their, becomes a teacher on their own or becomes, um, really rely, comes to rely on their own resources, their own direct experience. And, uh, this is said to be mind-to-mind transmission, and that's you know, that could be a little confusing, but it's really that the teacher can see that the student has matured, and this is a kind of an intuitive and uh, cumulative assessment of the, the student's progress. So that could take place over a period of time where they're assessing the student's development. Or is it happening quickly? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, like you say, the stories are somewhat different and people get confirmed on the spot, confirmed that they have some great understanding. But in my experience, it, it takes some time. Yeah, it's... Um, You need to see how the student deals with deals with their own karmic conditioning, if you will, their own mental habit patterns. You have to see how they integrate the practice in their life. They could have the most astounding expression of understanding and you still wouldn't know how they have integrated it into their life and how it plays out in their interactions with other beings, human and otherwise. So I think it really does, uh, it takes some time, I think. Um, so So on this show, we often get into... Uh, the nature of reality, exploring the nature of reality. And uh, so let me put it to you, like, how does, what does Zen say about the nature of reality? And um, how has practicing Zen changed your own perception of the nature of reality? Uh, Okay, well, watch me get out of this question. (laughs) Uh, See, first of all, you know, Buddha is, uh, historical Buddha is famous for saying, well, you know, I don't teach these kinds of things. Uh, I teach the about suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering and the path to the cessation of suffering. He says it's within this fathom-long carcass that I talk about the world. So it's really, it's based and, and uh, you know, centered on the human experience. And so what he's really saying is abstract notions about the nature of reality are sometimes, uh, perhaps all the time, beside the point. Um, you know, there's this analogy of uh, you're, you've just been shot by an arrow, so you have this arrow sticking out of your chest. 
And is it really important to uh, analyze where, what kind of arrow it is and where the arrow came from and uh, how the flight path might have been uh, determined by a certain force that unleashed the arrow, et cetera, et cetera. It's really more important to pull up the arrow out of the chest and deal with the, the wound. Um, that said, Buddhists uh, have developed pretty sophisticated ideas about uh, reality and everything else. The Zen school, uh, if I can call it that, one of our foundational stories is about Bodhidharma, who theoretically, as historically, the story goes, brought the spirit of Zen from India to China, where Zen flourished and then was later uh, brought to Japan and to America. But anyway, Bodhidharma, the famous story is that he's before the Chinese emperor, and the emperor uh, asks a couple other questions, but finally asks, well, who are you sitting in front of me? And Bodhidharma says, don't know, don't know. And this don't know um, has really become one of the central teachings of Zen, I think. And so I think it's the most important description of reality that we have in Zen, is don't know. And so that means that any um, any conception of reality that we try to come up with and describe the world with is missing something. And this don't know, which is not a, uh, which is a very direct facing of reality. This don't know is more intimate than, and more in that way truer than any description of reality. So it's a direct experience that drops all conceptual frameworks, uh, at least you know, allows them to settle and fall away, so that there's this direct participatory experience of living at reality that is beyond uh, ideas about it. And we can, you know, we can discover this for ourselves when. We're facing a problem or just sitting in meditation and we are trying to figure something out. And we notice that and allow this conceptualization, this effort to know, allow that just to fall away and simply be open to what is. So that's another thing about our meditation is we open to what is without necessarily having ideas about what it is. Mm -hmm. And it's not that ideas don't develop, it's not that ideas aren't helpful, but in the end, it's simply being open and engaged in life. Now, it is true that we have some ideas that help us, that help guide us through this, but I think that's the fundamental fundamental teaching about reality. I 
could go on further, but uh, if you want to, please do. But <clears throat> that does answer it pretty well. I think. Yeah, let's leave it there. Okay. Unless you want to inquire about more specific things. Um, I, I'm kind of speechless. <laughs> I don't uh, know where to take it from there exactly. Um, but it, it was a satisfying answer. answer. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think that's kind of what the show has kind of revealed is there's lots of different ideas about what reality is and there's probably no mm-hmm. no correct one. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, and that's the, that's the uh, if I may be a little biased here, that's the beauty of the don't know answers is it because it acknowledges that there are many descriptions and, you know, many kind of fine and uh, eloquent descriptions. But in the end, the description becomes an intermediary between you, between the person, if you will, and reality itself. And so to uh, not rely on that description and have a direct experience is what uh, is upheld most uh, well, uh, what's esteemed in the now Buddhism does have teachings about you know absolute truth and relative truth and uh, the emptiness of phenomena and phenomena and many other things that we could talk about but uh, I wanted to get that don't know one in there first um you, I assume this is kind of common these days, but you, you do uh, move out from Zen Buddhism in your teaching and use other forms of Buddhism to sort of supplement what's being taught and thought about, like uh, I suppose Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, have you felt like that has um, <clears throat> helped your students get at something that uh, would otherwise maybe be kind of ignored or not hit upon? Or in in Zen specifically? Yeah. Well, I I um that is the approach that uh, that I trained under, and it's one that I. I continue to take myself, I think. And who's to say why that is? You know, there uh everyone is interested in kind of preserving the essence of the tradition and allowing the kind of cultural baggage that it has acquired as it's been transmitted from place to place, allowing that cultural cultural baggage to fall away. And people have different ideas about well what is what is the essence of the tradition. But in my mind, in in seeing how 21st century Americans encounter Japanese-derived uh, Soto Zen, because it's come to us from, from Japan, it seems like some supplementary practices are, as you say, helpful. And uh, some of those you know, have to do with compassion, some of them have to do with communication, some of them have to do with uh, dealing with emotions, 
so yeah, I think, uh, and here, you know, here again, we're staying to that idea that there's no one right approach. And another one of our teachings is that of skillful means. So uh, it's not a matter of dogma, but it's a matter of using the means which are most skillful to to uh, bring about the awakening or the development of the student. And so we have, you know, not only the forms of Zen and the teachings of Zen at our disposal, but um, most Zen, I think most Zen traditions do use the original teachings of Buddha as part of their study, uh, and also the Mahayana Sutras as part of their study, uh, which we, you know, I certainly endorse. And then to go beyond that, we use, as you said, some of the Tibetan uh, approaches and uh, some of the Vipassana things. And it gets back to, you know, as a teacher, you kind of have to use your own experience in a way as a, your own experience and your own intuition as a barometer of what's best for the student. And as a result, I think, you know, different teachers have somewhat different approaches, and that's only natural. I think students, to some extent, gravitate toward a teacher who has an approach with which they feel some affinity, and that's uh, certainly a natural thing and probably a good thing. But uh, let's see, where are we going with this? Uh, oh, other practices. Yeah, so in general, um, you kind of take the practices that you think uh, help people and uh, while staying true to the spirit of Zen and keeping Zen as your core practice. Right. Well, I, I found it. <laughs> I found it helpful, the things that you've brought up in this class that we're finishing up now. Um, like loving kindness, I I don't know that that's even talked about directly in, in Buddhism, but um, that's been extremely helpful. Yeah, I think that's a good example of, of things that aren't a central element of the Zen tradition. Uh, they, they are in other Buddhist traditions and it seems to me and any other Western Zen teachers that they are helpful to the students. Not to scare people away from the Zen, but can we talk about how um, when you start to inquire into your mind and the nature of your mind and um, start to watch your thoughts, how <clears throat> things can get quite a bit rougher, actually, and more more intense than maybe you were uh, dealing with prior to that. Sure, yes. Well, that's that's very true, I think. And, uh, but it's one of those things that, well, I don't know if people hear that caution, you know, when you tell them beforehand. You say, well, it might get a little rougher before it gets better. Uh, I think it's one of those, maybe it's a good thing that people don't really uh, 
know what we're talking about. But it is true. So one of the starting points, and I think one of the central practices of all Buddhism is to, well, to see how it is we're suffering and to investigate the cause of that suffering. And by that we mean the internal uh, causes, the causes that we carry around with us, which is in one of our important teachings, that suffering doesn't come from the outside world, it comes from our conditioning response to what life presents us. So as we begin to look at our mind, and our mind calms down, first we kind of see, wow, I'm really a little bit crazier than I thought. Mm -hmm. My mind is just bouncing all over, and I'm wanting this, and trying to avoid that, and uh, it's a common experience that people are a little dismayed by the chaotic nature of their minds when they, you know, first begin to look more closely. So that's uh, that's one thing. And then also, as people begin to see uh, how they, what they use to avoid suffering, you know, what patterns and what behaviors, etc. When they see that those are really not serving them well or they are simply examined closely enough so that they really no longer work, then the suffering that's been avoided by those mechanisms uh, kind of comes to the fore. You know, it might be a grief at um, some childhood trauma, or it might be, you know, something more existential, or it might just be noticing on, you know, how self-critical we've been for so long. And these defense mechanisms lose their potency and are seen through, and the raw suffering comes up. And so sometimes, yeah, that is more intense than uh, what we had experienced before. But it's my it's my personal experience, and also uh, it's what I see the students is that that raw suffering is it's more real. It's more you know it somehow seems truer, more authentic than these ways of defending ourselves and keeping it at bay and masking it over. So, despite the fact that it can be more painful than what we're used to, uh, I think the fact that it feels more real uh, keeps us keeps us going and at some level is uh, deeply satisfying. Yeah. <clears throat> I have a hard time <laughs> meditating these days without some tears, it seems like. Uh, it's, or, you know, it's so much there that, so many wounds there, you know, from Childhood yes. or whatever, you know. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And so that's, you know, well, these this armor that we create, uh, or these uh, defense mechanisms that we create to keep ourselves from experiencing the whole the whole spectrum of our lives. These, uh, you know, a large part of our practice is seeing those seeing that armor, seeing those obstacles and letting them fall away and opening ourselves more and more. 
to this incredible uh, experience that we call life. Nice. Um, kind of running out of questions here, but um, what what would you say? <laughs> what would be the benefit for humanity today to take a look at Zen Buddhism or try practicing Zen Buddhism? I know it's a broad question. But. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think first of all, it would be uh, you know, I think if all of humanity I wouldn't necessarily advocate for everybody to practice Zen Buddhism, but to um you know, to, to examine to examine human suffering, the nature of suffering, and how it is that uh, I think the basic Buddhist teaching that it is a result of our conditioning and how we meet the experiences of our life. I think if everybody had a had a access to that, had a path to that discovery, then we wouldn't be you know, we wouldn't be demonizing another race, another religion, another class, another political party, whatever, we would have more of a sense that, well, this is something I'm projecting on them. Uh, I'm seeing my own fears reflected back to me uh, from them. And if I were, if more people were to adopt this sense of don't know, this don't know mind, and this sense of curiosity and openness to what is before them. So who is this person? I may have some ideas about them, but let me drop those ideas and just directly be open to who that person is in front of me. And uh, if I see my own conditioning arising and creating some reaction to this person, can I just be present with that and not uh, not let it uh, carry me away? So this open curious investigation of our lives and open-hearted too. So being willing to feel the pain of life, being willing to feel the joy of life, being willing to be engaged with life rather than shut off from that. I think there are many paths to, to that kind of experience and Zen is one that I have taken up and seems, uh, you know, very beautiful and uh, profound. Uh, so I think if people moved in that direction by any path, that uh, the world would be different. Uh, and yet, with it, you know, we can't we can't reject any part of our lives. So this suffering that I'm describing and which we all experience and this uh, projecting that I'm describing, which we all do, is part of being human. So somehow we have to embrace the whole, uh, you know, the whole catastrophe, as people say, the whole 
the whole arena, the whole the whole works, and have some sense of openness and compassion toward toward anybody. And so when somebody when we see somebody that's angry and engaging in some cruel behavior, uh, not to think, well, you know, they just haven't done this path or they have, they are one thing or another to approach them as a suffering human being, you know, uh, just like we are suffering human beings and we have to feel that affinity with them and meet, meet them, you know, on a common basis so that things can, might go differently than uh, they have in the past. I like that answer. <clears throat> That's so so hard to actually practice, but yes, it is, and that's why we that's why we have our our meditation. You know that we do again and again, again, never ending, uh, sitting down and allowing the mind to calm and facing facing all of our conditioning, facing how it is that we create suffering for ourselves and others, and being being courageous and unflinching in in seeing our own uh, our own weaknesses, our own uh, less than noble parts of ourselves and really allowing them to be what they are. Mm. Um, So some of our forms of Zen, if I could just stick in something about forms, um, you know, Zen has... Zen has a reputation somewhat... uh, somewhat real uh, that it is a very stripped-down spiritual tradition, so, and it is stripped, I think, of dogma to a great extent, as I've expressed this don't know uh, thing, it's it's a pretty undogmatic approach, but nevertheless we have these forms, and particularly as we've uh, received Zen from Japan, we have all this bowing and chanting and uh, doing things a certain way and, uh, you know, we wear robes and do this sewing on our own. And so people come to this uh, without any prior experience and it seems pretty darn strange. And uh, people often ask, well, you know, why do we need these forms? And, uh, you know, I, I like Zen, but I just don't like all these forms. Well, in my experience, these forms really, uh, well, they support all this practice that we've been talking about this morning, and they hold us and allow this difficult uh, maturation, this cooking, this unfolding, allow it to take place. So, And they keep putting us back again and again and again to this, down place of, you know, in Soto Zen, we face the wall. In our meditation, we face just the bare truth of ourselves and uh, unflinchingly open to it again and again. So these forms 
that's one thing they do is they bring us back again and again to the to this basic form of sitting in a erect posture facing the wall. There are other forms that help us, you know, in retreat and in more formal settings. They give us the experience of moving as one body. So while uh, within this silent form of meditation and we're, uh, we're all somewhat engaged in our individual mental experience and yet our bodies and therefore our whole, you know, in one aspect of our beings are engaged in this practice of moving as one body. So we get up from our meditation, we turn us in a certain direction, we do our walking meditation together as a body, somebody rings a bell or claps a clacker, and then we go back to our seat and we bow together, sit down together. And that occurs again and again throughout a day of formal practice. So this it's a it's an expression of how we have to bring together this element of individualism or not individualism but um, addressing the issues of our individual experience and then also letting go into something larger than ourselves. And so these forms uh, we just if we can just do them with that don't know mind, right? We, we try not to say, well, what does this mean, you know? Mm-hmm. If I bow like this, does it mean that I'm, you know, raising some idol above me or something like that? You know, what does it mean? And, uh, which is a natural question for people, but what we encourage people to do is to just do it with this don't know mind. Just experience it uh, and open to what that experience is. And so these forms allow us to, well, they allow us to, excuse me, they allow us to engage in a different mode of learning, a different mode of experience, more body-centered. And uh, we learned, we learned that this, this body-centered, uh, more unified mode of being in the world can really really supports us really supports that individual uh, struggle and that individual unfolding uh, it's, so it's a beautiful expression of these two things that we talk about in, in Buddhism you know, we have the individual and we have the whole uh, we say not one but not two so to say that we're just uh or let's start with not two. To say that we're separate, you know, two, this me and this other person, self and other, to say that we're separate, it's not completely true because there is this deep sense of being one and living as one body. But on the other hand, to say that we're all one, that's not really completely true either because uh, we definitely have this experience of being sep- a separate human being. And as long as we are in this human life, we're never going to be uh, totally free of that. We're never going to uh, shed that completely. So this teaching of not one and not two. Well, you know, uh, if you're approaching that rationally, you might just tear out your hair or throw up your hands or say, you know, sorry, this isn't for me. But if you're, you know, 
keep that don't know mind and investigate the experience of oneness, yes, that is real and that is very supportive, and yet don't try to get away from the experience of separateness. Yes, that's a real part of our life, mm-hmm. and somehow hold them together. Um, that's what our task as a human being is, I think, and that's what spiritual life can provide us with, is this underpinning of interconnectedness uh, that holds and supports our experience of being separate in this life. And as I was saying, these forms, I think, uh, help with that and not only express it in a symbolic way, but lead us to that, to the experience of, of both. Yeah, I, it's good to hear from me right now, <laughs> just uh, dealing with a, a new relationship and definitely kind of uh, seeing the the togetherness, the oneness, and also the separateness, and mm-hmm. trying to accept accept both and nourish both. Yeah, one expression I like these days is uh, allow yourself to be lived by the one life. So we are these separate beings, but there's something that larger than us that's living us. And, uh, you know, I think all traditions have a way to get at this, but that's my current favorite expression or way of talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Joseph Campbell uh, early on in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he definitely is a student of Hume to some degree. Um have you looked at Jung's work at all, and how do you, how would you relate his idea of like the shadow into Zen Buddhism? Yeah, so actually, uh, Jung has been a major influence in my life, and uh, I discovered him before I discovered Joseph Campbell right out of college. It was one of the it was a real awakening for me uh, to discover Jung's way of putting, well, kind of putting it all together, putting it first as an experience-based approach to life. And it combines, uh, well, it it encompasses psychology and religion and art and philosophy and everything else that you can think of. And so, yeah, he has this idea these ideas of archetypes and uh, you know, one would be the shadow and uh, the anima and the animus uh, that is that men have a female archetype that they're well let's not go into all that but there are these energies in our psyches if you will that Jung sees combined uh, or collected, expressed by these, this idea of archetypes. And uh, the shadow being one of the more accessible ones. And usually I think he defines that as the parts of our self, our personality that we 
don't want to accept, you know, we don't want to uh, include as when we say, I am this, we want to say, I am this, I'm not these other things. You know, and those other things that we say we're not, that yet that are roiling around in our psyche are, you know, it can be considered the shadow. So our meditation practice, even though we don't use these terms typically, uh, our meditation practice is opening to the whole thing, the whole of experience. And a fundamental teaching of Zen is to not reject, you know, not separate into good and bad, right and wrong, uh, to see how that activity of separation that we engage in mentally, how that divides our life and again, masks us from a direct experience and a wholehearted acceptance of everything that is. So, like I said, even though we don't use these terms, opening to what Jung would call the shadow would be a very important part of our practice. And it's one of those things that, as we mentioned earlier, can be quite difficult and needs uh, a supportive structure of teacher of sangha, of form, and other things to, you know, support the individual in this difficult and, well, just emotionally, excuse me, fraught uh, practice of opening to those things that we've formally rejected. And this calls in the question, you know, who who are we? You know, what, what is this I that I keep referring to? And I am fighting so hard to preserve uh, an idea of that I want to be this and I don't want to be that and I want to be able to think of myself in this way. And that when life brings up things that cause me to think of myself in some other way, uh, some way that's not so appealing that uh, my whole existence seems to be threatened. These are all things that we unravel and unfold in the practice of Buddhism and in the practice of Zen. So I see the two as as very compatible. And, uh, you know, Jung's approach was all-encompassing, as I said, and I think Zen and Buddhism is also all-encompassing. And Though they use different language, I think they are quite compatible. And some Zen teachers are, are kind of dismiss psychology as, oh, that's just psychology. You know, we, we go beyond psychology. But at least in talking about Jung's psychology, it, I think it's a, it goes to the very root of human experience, and it's also a spiritual uh, discipline, a spiritual tradition. So. Uh, I see the two as being quite compatible. Oh, great! Yeah, that's uh, <clears throat> that worked out well. I'm glad that you have that background. Um, perfect for the show. I'm so glad that uh, you took the time to talk to us today. Like I can tell, it was a good show from my perspective because I'm looking forward to listening to the recording. Um, good, yeah. It was fun for me. Uh, I enjoy. Uh, I enjoy question and answers because. I don't have to plan ahead, and I don't have to think too hard, so uh, yeah. I can just kind of let it flow. Um, 
So you have a website, seattlesotozen.org. Um, yes. Is there a way people in Seattle should get involved if they want to check things out? Sure. Well, uh, at the, on the website, it uh, will give information about our various practice opportunities. We uh, have public meditation uh, twice a week. Everyone is welcome. 9.30 on Sunday mornings and 6.15 on Tuesday evenings. We do a brief introductory session uh, on Sunday, on the first Sunday of the month at 8.30 a.m. And so people are uh, welcome to try that out. But also uh, they can just show up and uh, ask some questions and go from there. Wonderful. Thank you, Jeff. Well, thank you, Otto. It's, uh, I look forward to, uh, to hearing some of your other podcasts and uh, seeing what it is that you're putting together here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, feel free to check them out. You might, be, um, you might find them humorous or interesting, but uh, hopefully thought-provoking. Yeah. Um, I look forward to talking to you more uh, in class and... Uh, uh, one-on-one even. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, Otto, well, thanks again, and uh, hope it works out, and we'll uh, see you soon. All right, thanks, Jeff. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.